Okay, so why can we possibly do that? You are a broken, sinful people. I am worse. So how can we come before Christ and say, we are taking of your blood, figuratively. We are taking of your body, figuratively. What you gave up for us, how can we possibly say to him, we are taking of these things, yet we are broken? What kind of brashness does that take? What kind of boldness does it take to say, you know what, I can come and stand before Jesus, the one who has the power of life, the power of death, the one who can end us with a word. For out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword, able to separate us to the very smallest component of who we are. And yet we come before him and we take of what he offers. How can we do that? We can only do that because of the boldness that we have in the gospel saying our boldness comes from knowing that we are broken, comes from knowing that we fail, comes from knowing that we are not good enough on our own. That's what we see in this text. In this text that we're about to read, we see that the boldness that we have to come before the throne is only through the gospel, only through Christ Jesus. So we can take communion, we can be in that position together because of him. Ephesians chapter three, verses one through 13. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And that is what we preached on last week. Getting to that point, the manifold wisdom of God made known through us, his people. This this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through the, our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So he ends this, this section 
by stipulating, reminding that we have boldness in Jesus. Why? What does that boldness look like? What are we supposed to do with it? Let's step back and answer some of those questions. So starting, we're going to look, read again, starting in verse 11. He says, this was according to the eternal par- purpose. What was according to the eternal purpose? The use of the church to make Christ known. The use of the church, us, as a dysfunctional broken group of people to unite us and grow us was part of his eternal purpose to make the mystery known, to make his purpose known. When he says it was part of the eternal purpose, we should be reminded of earlier in this book, earlier in this letter, where he uses some of these, this phrasing, some of this idea. In chapter 1, verse 11, he says, In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, God, who works all things according to the counsel or purpose of his will. So when Paul writes later that God's use of the church to bring about his or show his manifold, wit, uh, his manifold wisdom, it was not on accident. This wasn't the best use of plan B. I remember a class that I was in in college. I was told to always think of this when you're going into a meeting. He called it BATNIF, the best alternative to failed negotiations. What do you do when your your option in the negotiation fails what's your what's your next move what are you willing to accept how far are you willing to bend right this was not god's best alternate plan this was his intentional plan how exactly does that work i don't know I know that we are told that from eternity past, he had a plan to use the church in our brokenness to show his wisdom, to show his glory, to bring about his purpose. But how he gets from an unbroken world to choosing to use a broken church to show his glory, I don't know. He doesn't exactly tell us. But he says, trust me. Trust me, I have a plan from eternity past to bring about the end that is the best end, not the best alternate end, but the best end. Trust me as we go through this. So now we we are looking at the, the use of the church and this was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus. And that's a weird phrase. Let's just accept that. We don't use the word realized in this sense very often. Because when we say that we realized something, oh, I realized just a moment ago that the only communion bread I was going to have if I didn't get up and walk to the back was full of gluten and going to make me sick. 
I realized that. I didn't know it ahead of time, but I recognized it once I pulled it out and I thought, oh, I can't do this. So I have two choices. I can either walk to the back and get a, get a wafer that I can eat or just pretend to take it. And I thought pretending to take it seemed fake. So I walked to the back. The very first wedding I ever performed was for my sister. And we went through the whole thing. It went great. Lots of fun. They, in fact, they made me start it by quoting the Princess Bride at the beginning of their wedding. If you know the Princess Bride, you know the scene. I had to memorize it and it was great. But we get all the way to the end and I step down ready to do the, I now pronounce you husband and wife thing, right? And all of a sudden I look and I realize we didn't do the rings. I seriously thought, I wonder if maybe nobody else will notice. We could just do this later, I guess, if we have to. But I was like, I realized that I had really messed this up. So that's how we normally use realize. Okay, rings-wise, I just decided to accept the fact that I was ridiculous, admit that, and announce that up front, and then just go right back into doing the rings. But I realized that. That is not how this is being used in this sense. God didn't come to a new recognition that, that Jesus was the way, right? Because it was an eternal purpose on his end to do this. So he couldn't have put Jesus on earth and then gone, oh, wow, look at this, it all works. He had to know what he was doing. So when it says that he realized it, that's the idea of, of he made it realized or he made it known to us. He revealed it. That's the idea that it's carrying with it. And in fact, if you go back and do a word study on the Greek words, the word means to make or make known. That's really what it means. And I'm not exactly sure how they came to use the word realized in this. Uh, the, the men who translate, or men and women, the people who translated this from Greek to English, I'm not exactly sure why they chose realized, but it carries that idea of he made known to people, not he had an aha moment and said, oh, look at this. It's actually going to work. God doesn't have those moments. God knows already what is to happen. However, his foreknowledge works. We can have that discussion at a different time. However, his foreknowledge works. He knows how a thing is going to go. Not only a thing, but everything. So he realized this in Jesus. He made it known, made it recognizable to us as people. And it puts in the very center of all of this section, Jesus. A few months ago, we, we looked at the first part of this chapter or first part of this letter and we looked at the, an idea called Soli Deo Gloria for the glory of God alone, right? The glory of God is a central component to all that is going on. And that's what we see here. As God says, he makes his manifold wisdom known through the church, which he purposed or realized in Christ, he puts Jesus, not the church, at the center point. 
The church becomes the first sort of step from that, but Jesus remains the center point. And you will see that if you look at all for it through scripture, that every time things go on, God re-centralizes Christ in this process. Not just the process of our salvation, the process of our growth. Not just the process of our growth as individuals, but the process of the growth of his church as a whole. Christ is center. And if ever he's not center then we are in sin because he is the only one worthy of it. Only one worthy of being center. I was watching a movie with two of my kids the other night and, and there was a, a moment in this movie where, where a guy looks at the one of the main characters and he goes, you have no right to do what you're about to do. And that character says, no, I have the only right to do what I'm going to do. I'm the only one who can have this action. In Jesus' case, the only one who can have this position. Nobody else deserves it. Nobody else can, can fit that, that space, can fill those shoes. So he's re-centralized. Every time the opportunity comes for, for something to be center, he is put in the center all throughout the New Testament and God and his spirit all throughout the whole Bible as the Old Testament leads us to Christ. And then the New Testament reveals him more clearly to us. This, this using of the church was according to God's eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So not only is Jesus central, he's Lord. And that is not a word that we have a good emotional tie to. We dismiss it really easily because the closest thing we can come to is employer in our natural, normal experience in America. The closest we can get to is employer. And an employer, they have some authority. I mean, in that moment, they do, but you can always just choose to go get a different job. I mean, if you don't know, Marquette is not the only town in America. So there are other places you could be. You might not want to be. It might be the best place in America, but there are other places you could go where you could be employed by somebody else. So your employer only has authority in so long as you put yourself in their employ, right? As long as they're your employer, they have authority over you as an employee. But even in that, it's restricted to the time that you are an employee. Not so with the idea of Lord. A Lord not only has authority, he has ultimate authority. If he chooses that you should be put to death, for whatever reason he chooses, you're put to death. If you disobey a Lord, you get whatever punishment he decides, not that a judge and jury decides, but that he decides. So when Jesus is our Lord, it's not just that he's like this authority like, like a principal or, or an employer or, or whatever you want to put there. This is the level of the one that has unilateral power over your life, for your life, for your death, to whatever end he would choose. 
Yet it's really easy for us to see Christ Jesus and say, Christ Jesus, our Lord. But that title is a title of power and position. So God realized these things in Christ who is our Lord, right? That's how far we've gotten that, that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness. And that is a word that either makes you excited or deflated. And it makes us excited or deflated based on the experiences that we've had with bold people. Is boldness good? Is boldness bad? Is boldness neutral? It all depends on the type of boldness you're talking about. Because the boldness that we have been given here is a boldness stemming from confidence in Christ as the one in power, as Christ as the one in control, as Christ as the one who is central. That kind of boldness leads us to what? Leads us to defer to other people. Because I don't need to get my way as a bold person if my position is in Christ. So if my position is in Christ and my hope is in Christ and my goal is eternity with him based on trust of him, then what happens if I don't get the color vehicle that I would like to get and instead Allison gets the color vehicle she would like to get? Who cares? It's the color of a vehicle. What happens if I go bowling and I don't bowl as well as other people? Which was last night and no, I did not. It doesn't matter. I can do my best, and if I don't get the results that I want, even in my boldness, even in my, my personality of, of maybe being able to overrun people, I don't need to. I don't want to. But the boldness that doesn't stem from Jesus, we call, I would call that a Christ-impetist boldness, an impetus being that thing that spurs on or pushes forward. You could think of the impetus being like a bomb. When a bomb explodes, all sorts of things happen, but the impetus was that bomb, right? Christ-impetist boldness, the boldness that comes from him as the center point, looks like deferring to other people. Looks like Philippians chapter two, verses three and four, where Paul says, it's not, you don't look out only for your own interests, but each look out for the interests of others, right? Because we understand that we only hold a certain position. We're not better than we think we are. We, are, we were dead in Christ and he made us alive. So do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Each of you should look not to, only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Don't worry about getting your way. Worry about getting Christ glorified. So then if you give to somebody else what they're desiring and Christ is glorified, you both win. We defer but the boldness that stems from our own person, our own position, our own personality, our own strength is the kind of boldness that is more bullish than bold. 
It says, no, I'm gonna get my way because I hold a higher position than you. I'm gonna get my way because I have a stronger personality than you. I'm gonna get my way because I want my way. And who all of a sudden is center in all of that? It's not Jesus. It's us. That is not the boldness that Paul writes of here. The boldness that he writes of is one that stands on and only on the work of Christ. Which means that it centers from a position that doesn't look at us at all. Other than to say, you were worthless. You were broken. You weren't good enough. You weren't strong enough. You weren't capable enough. So Christ did his work to make you alive in him. By grace, we have been saved, right? And now all of a sudden, this boldness is a boldness stemming from him that says, I can swing for the fences if I need to. Because he's the one, if I fail, I haven't ruined. I've simply tried to honor. But beyond that, Coming back to the communion idea, it says not only we have boldness, but we have boldness in access through faith. We have boldness to, to access before Christ, before his throne in faith, not because we are strong, but particularly because we are weak. In our weakness, we, we look at him and we say, we need your body, we need your blood. Our death wouldn't be enough. Our blood couldn't cover our sins, but yours can and yours did. And so now we can come before him with confidence, with boldness because of what he has done and who he is. Hebrews chapter four, verses 14 to 16 says this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is the boldness that we have. The boldness that says we can access his throne. We can come before him because he has paid the penalty that we owed. He has paid the price that we should have incurred. So that's him as a high priest. Not only do we have him as a high priest, we have the Holy Spirit as an intercessor. An intercessor, if you're not familiar with that term, means someone who, who goes before someone else on your behalf. Intercessory prayer is me praying for you that God would work in you. So, so we've got you, we've got God, and we've got an intercessor over here who's not in the line of the need but praying for that who is, those who are in the line of the need. Romans 8, 26 and 27 says this. Likewise, the Spirit, that being the Holy Spirit, helps us in our weakness. 
For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So even when as believers, we still fall short, even when as believers, we still are inept and incapable, the Holy Spirit is interceding for us with words that we can't even know, we aren't even capable of understanding. He intercedes with the Father on our behalf. But not only do we have the Spirit, we also have Christ. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. John writes this, My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, then we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We could get into a great theological discussion of what it means for Jesus to be the propitiation, not only of our sins, but of the sins of the whole world. That'd be a great conversation, not for this moment, but if you'd like to have that conversation, I'd love to have that with you. But the point of the passage is that he is our advocate, not because we are good enough, but because he is good enough. So we have the Holy Spirit as our intercessor, which allows us to go before the Father. We have Jesus as our advocate, who even in our sin allows us to go before the Father. And now we come back to Romans again. Romans 8, 33 and 34, writes, or Paul writes this, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And he's already said God has justified us. So God justifies, so who can bring a charge against God's elect? Now, who is there to condemn? Who's left? If God's justified us, who's left to condemn us? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So not only do we have the Holy Spirit interceding for us, and not only do we have Jesus as our advocate, but before the Father, he's also interceding for us. So now as believers, we have the Holy Spirit, one part of the Godhead, and we have Jesus Christ, another part of the Godhead, going before God the Father saying, hey, we are interceding on behalf of Brock because he is just inept. And I am. And you have the Holy Spirit and you have Jesus interceding on your behalf because you are inept, not able to do it on your own. That's why we have boldness. Not boldness because we're strong enough and we can make it happen. That's a weak sort of boldness that says, if I fail, then I must no longer be able to be bold because I don't have that position. No, we're bold because he did a work and he made it happen. And now we come before the Father boldly. When life goes well, we come before the Father boldly. But what does Paul continue to write here? Ephesians 3, verse 13. Because we have boldness in Christ, he says, so, which is an indicator of because of the past, now the present, now the future, so I ask you not to lose heart over what goes on in my life. 
Is that what it says? I ask you not to lose heart over my suffering. So let's lay this to rest. You will suffer. I will suffer. Together, we will suffer. How do we know? I'm glad you asked. Let's look at John chapter 16, verse 33. This is a whole section of amazing uh, Christ talking to God and Christ talking to his disciples uh, moments just before he dies. John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So in this moment, you will have difficulty, but take heart, I've already beaten the world. Go to 17, chapter 17, verses 14 and 15, which is just a, a little bit further than we just were. I have given them your word. This is Jesus praying to God. We have this thing called the Lord's Prayer, which is not the Lord's Prayer at all. It's a misnomer. That is the Lord's example to prayer out of Matthew chapter 6. But here we have one whole chapter of Christ praying. That is the Lord's Prayer, otherwise called the high priestly prayer. But verses 14 and 15 says this, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Listen to that. Because you will hear people, especially people on TV, tell you that you do not need to have troubles and tribulations and trials and hardships, and they are lying. Even if it's not intentional lying, they're wrong. He says, we will have trouble, 1633. He says, here, you're gonna have a hard time and I'm not even asking God to take you out of that. I'm asking him to, in the midst of him letting you go through hardships to keep you from total destruction, the evil one. Now let's go back to chapter 15. Chapter 15, verses 18 to 20. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Because, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, which they did, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Trouble is expected. Is it fun? No. Do we look forward to it? No. Does it change our position before Jesus? No. It puts us in a place where we continue to be in need of him, which is exactly where we started, which is exactly what gives us boldness in him. Back to Ephesians chapter three. We don't lose heart over suffering because Christ has made us bold in him to have access before his throne because of who he is. 
and who he is uses us as the church to show his wisdom and his position because of the mystery of the gospel which puts us at the same place as the Jews, unites us all together from the same starting point because by grace we've been saved, only by grace through faith. And so because we're saved by grace, which is then the revelation of the mystery of the gospel, which gives us boldness, we don't lose heart. Even when life is terrible, when it knocks you down and kicks you in the teeth. We don't lose heart because it's temporary. We don't lose heart because Jesus hasn't changed. We don't lose heart because he still grants us access to his throne, because he is still interceding for us, because he is still our advocate, because the Holy Spirit still intercedes for us, and our position hasn't changed. So we don't lose heart even when it's terrible. We don't lose heart even when it's boring. We don't lose heart because of who he is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the amazing opportunity that we have to know you, the amazing opportunity that we have to glorify you and honor you. Lord, we pray that we would find our boldness in you. We pray that we would find you as a centerpiece to our thoughts and our actions, to our purposes to all that we do. We pray, Father, that you would be the one who is honored and glorified. We pray that you would be the one who is lifted high and exalted. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for giving us you. And it's in the amazing, holy name of your Son and through the power of the Spirit who intercedes for us, we pray. Amen.